it, it can be really hard, I think, in wellness culture as it stands to differentiate between like, how can I choose to eat and move in ways that feel like they're good for me? Because it's, it's often so black and white or cut and dry. It's like, you're either healthy or you're, or you're unhealthy. You're either clean or you're dirty. And it's, it's not like that. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Our Nature. If you don't know me, my name is Alyssa Benjamin. I'm an intuitive coach, a back to nature guide, and I host this podcast, which explores the nature around us to understand the nature within us. If you're new to Our Nature, welcome to the pod. I am so grateful that you're taking the time to listen today. I first wanted to thank each and every one of you who I've connected with about my course homecoming over the last month or so. The doors closed for it officially for 2021 earlier this week on Monday, and I'm just so excited to hold space for the individuals who have signed up for this program. It has truly been my greatest joy to offer this course, and if you couldn't join this time around, I will most likely be offering homecoming again in 2022. So this was definitely not your last chance to be part of this experience. Before we get into this week's guest, I wanted to talk about something I recently shared with those who are subscribed to my newsletter. Early on when I first launched this podcast, I was so scared of putting myself and my voice out into the world that I would become physically nauseous in the days leading up to the launch of every new episode. I would literally wake up each Wednesday and I would feel sick to my stomach. I was so terrified of being seen and of being witnessed because to me, that could mean being judged and ultimately being rejected. I know I'm not the only one who is afraid of being ostracized or cast out. In fact, fear of rejection is actually coded into our biology as a species. In our ancestors' time, to be cast out of a group was to face the real possibility of death, either from starvation or from predators. And so it's literally in our DNA to desire acceptance and belonging and to fear judgment and rejection. This biological tendency is then often amplified if we grew up in an environment where we felt physically unsafe or shamed for certain parts of ourselves, environments where our inner critic was consistently fed by others. And so when my intuition guided me to start Our Nature, this podcast, in 2019, I was thrust right up against my own fear of being seen in such a confronting way. 
In sharing parts of myself publicly and intimately through this podcast, parts that I had never before shared with anyone, not even some of my friends, I felt super exposed. And this extreme unease and discomfort lasted for years that I had this podcast up until really recently. In the past six months, I'd say that my capacity for being seen and for turning towards the discomfort it brings has grown exponentially because I've learned the key to getting comfortable with it. And that, my friends, is self-compassion. When I let myself off the hook and lean into my imperfections versus trying to hyper-control people's perceptions of me, my capacity for fearless, inspired self-expression grows. I've become so much more comfortable with being seen and witnessed because I've become more accepting of myself. And I mean my full self, not just the parts of me that I want people to see. And the best part is that the more I lean into and share the real me, the more connection and acceptance I receive. Because as it turns out, I'm actually much more relatable when I'm not trying so hard. So if you're listening to this and you too have struggled with feeling safe about being seen, I see you. And here's the good and bad news. If you're ready to let your bigness and brightness shine, if you're ready to collapse timelines and transform your life, you're going to have to make self-compassion an ongoing intentional practice. Because there's no way you can step onto your path and realize your dreams if you're paralyzed by fear of failure. Because guess what? Failing is inevitable. I know because I have. And success does not mean not failing. It means knowing how to fail gracefully. And that requires a hefty dose of self-compassion. This theme of self-compassion is a perfect segue into this week's episode with Helen Phelan, a body neutrality Pilates and movement instructor who believes that everyone deserves to feel good in their body. Helen's approach to fitness and health is one centered around how exercise makes you feel versus how it makes you look. She uses conscious breathing techniques to enhance bodily intuition and high repetition sequences that encourage body awareness and mindfulness. As a former professional dancer, Helen developed disordered eating and exercise habits that caused a lot of self-criticism. It was in her recovery that she realized just how often the boutique fitness industry subtly encourages disordered eating and body shaming. She believes that the healing impact of the body neutral movement on mental health is the most important result exercise can give anyone. In this conversation, we discuss Helen's relationship to nature as a child, her unique perspective and offering in the fitness world, the personal experience that led Helen to her work as an inclusivity advocate, the many root causes of disordered of a disordered relationship with food, the mindset shift that can help us relate to our bodies differently, ways that we can incorporate more natural movement into our daily lives, what we need to believe in order to heal our relationship with our bodies, and nature's wisdom when it comes to developing a new relationship with ourselves. 
As always, there are more resources and helpful information in the show notes, which you can find at rnhrpodcast.com forward slash episodes. This conversation is so important because body shaming and disordered eating are outcomes of a society that profits off people feeling like that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. And when we connect with the natural world, we experience our belonging, our wholeness, and our rightness. So I hope Helen's work and this episode reminds you to be a bit kinder to yourself and your body. So with that, let's get into my conversation with Helen Phelan. Helen, I am so happy to have you on Our Nature. I feel like this has been a long time coming because we are friends outside of this podcast exchange. And I first met you through my friend, our mutual friend, Jules Bakshi, who has Good Move, who has also been a guest on the podcast. And very shortly after I started following your work and I think, you know, we, we started having conversations too, just between us about the work that you do and how you wanted to really shift the conversation around movement, around body image and all of that. And we'll get into, we're going to talk, so (laughs) we're going to get into all of that, but before we begin down that path, I would, something I ask almost every guest who is on the show is what their relationship was like to nature growing up. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs, so I wouldn't say that I was necessarily like outdoorsy. In fact, I, I didn't love, I was like forcibly made to camp because my mom was like my brother's boy scout leader. And so we did a lot of camping trips. It wasn't something that I remember like looking forward to. But I think after living in New York for almost a decade, you start to crave more of that because it's there's such a gaping void in New York City living of getting to be in touch with nature. So it was definitely an acquired desire to, or at least awareness that I that came about. I, do, I wouldn't say that like my childhood was very much outside. In fact, you know, growing up dancing, it was very much indoors in a studio with air conditioning. <laughs> Would you say that moving to New York was the catalyst for rediscovering this desire to reconnect? Well, I think New York, you know, not to romanticize it too much because I know it's been overdone, but it does, it, you know, it, you learn a lot about yourself living in such a difficult city, such an amazing city, but it is a, it's a difficult place to live. And I also moved here right out of college. So just like a general period of discovery as well. So Hard to say what was what. It's probably everything all mishmashed together, but definitely started to feel like I needed more space or just like the sheer density of people that are here, which I've I've missed this past year so much. So it's I'm, it's not a bad thing, but just because of the density of people, it feels like energy can get really blurry and it's really hard to have self-awareness or understanding of your body when you're crowded on a train, you know, bumping up to, up to people all the time. 
Yeah, it's definitely not a natural way to live. And I had um, a friend of mine, Alexa Ganthus, on the podcast recently, and she said something that was so interesting where she was like, cities were built for humans. It was, I mean, obviously, yes, but it was (laughs) so interesting to feel that, to think about that consciously, meaning like every part of that city is built for a human-sized person. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you go into nature, it's not to human scale. Yeah. Because it, it we're just one species amongst many. So when we go into nature psychologically, we begin to experience things like our insignificance and our smallness in a way that in a city we're not because everything is built for us. Yeah. So I thought that that was just such an interesting note. And it makes me think about the psychological impact of that over time. Well, it's also, you know, taking that a little bit further, it's built for like capitalism and production and hustle. It's not built for like humans to have restful, nourished lives. It's built for us to be as productive in the machine as we can be. So that all plays into it for sure. I would love to dive into what you do today And on your website, it says, Helen Phelan Studio is creative, challenging, and compassionate movement to strengthen both body and mind. That is such a unique description of what you offer. And I would love for you to share more about this approach and why you include mind as part of your offering, not just the body. Absolutely. Well, I think Pilates in general is is unique in that it requires just in practice, that, that mind-body awareness. And it's, it's sort of like the chicken or the egg. Does Pilates make you better at that mind-body awareness? I think so. But you also need to practice it to do Pilates or you're not really able to think about your alignment and your breath and your placement and what muscle's working and why and how, how it does that all by itself. Even if you think about some of the classes that I really don't like, at least that little component is there. Um, but it's important for me to include the mind in that because of, you know, sort of what you and I were talking about before we hopped on on the podcast is that fitness has, or movement, I should say, is has this ability to be both really, really healing and empowering or really problematic and shaming and toxic. And it's all in the way that you approach it. Like you can approach it like I'm doing this because I really am dissatisfied with this aspect of my body or my appearance. You can take that even further into like skincare and beauty and all of those things. Or I'm doing this because I, I want to take care of myself and I, I'm putting up a part, putting aside this time to do that. And even though movement has the capacity to be really challenging and not fun to do, it's like not all feel good stretching. We always feel better after because you know, we're made to move and it's cathartic. It's a release. It's a moment where you have to be listening to your body. Or I I could also argue that a lot of people do a lot of mindless movement where they're like totally checked out. And it's just with the research on like, if we're looking at the way that muscles activate, it's not as effective when you do it like that. Maybe you can force yourself into a routine like that because of you know, our culture is conditioning and you feel like you have to, and there's like all this pressure to be like the wellness person. Uh, but it's not going to be nearly as beneficial to your both body and mind if that's the the motivation. And I, I say compassionate because, you know, I am someone who has experienced a lot of disordered eating and negative body image issues throughout my life. 
also heavily influenced by the fact that I, I grew up dancing really seriously. But everybody has that. You don't have to be a dancer. You don't have to be in the performing arts to have that impact the way that you see yourself or the way that you 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 view how your body works. It's it's something that's everywhere in our culture. And it's a huge problem for me when I go and take like a Joe Schmo boutique fitness class because a lot of people are not trauma-informed and they're not eating disorder aware. And of course, you cannot be everything to everyone. I totally understand that. But when you're someone who is supposedly working in the health profession and caring, I hope, about someone's well-being, it really astounds me how little acknowledgement there is that this is probably most people who come into a fitness space come there because they're unhappy with their body and they stay because of all that other good stuff, hopefully. But it's impossible to ignore that that is on people's minds if you're in this field. So the compassion is really important for me. The de-emphasizing like physical, I should say, aesthetic results and prioritizing how movement makes you feel, your relationship with your body, how much you understand your body is, is the important part of it to me. Wouldn't you say that part of the way that, and this is sort of the root of capitalism, like part of the way that the market or the industry thrives is in that constant message that I have something that you don't have. Mm -hmm. And if you get what I have, you'll feel better. Yeah. You'll be enlightened. You'll be fixed. Problem solved. And that's like another even just like breaking that down onto like a starting a, a practice thing. It's really overwhelming for people because, you know, like I said, Pilates requires a lot of presence. And especially if that's not something that you've, you've done a lot or that you're comfortable with, that can be overwhelming. But I always say it's like learning an instrument or, or learning a language. Like you get it a little bit at a time. And unless you're a native speaker, you're still always working on something. There's still always something... To, to learn more about your vocabulary can evolve, et cetera. So it's, I know it sounds cheesy at this point, but it is about the, the process of doing it and showing up for yourself and what that communicates to your subconscious that you believe that you're worthy of taking this time for yourself, whether it's, you know, like a super intense workout where you feel like you're going to die after or just a little foam rolling and stretching and even just sitting and, and breathing it can look like a million different things as long as you're regularly, consistently doing something as radical as saying that this is for me. It, that shouldn't be so political, but it is pretty political because the mainstream thinking is that I'm doing this as punishment or like I have to get rid of some aspect of, of who I am, what I look like. It seems like it all comes back to intention. Like what's the intention? Because it can look on the outside like the same thing. Like you could see five people work out and be like, okay, without knowing what's, you know, the internal dialogue, it may all look the same. Like they're all, they could either be showing up to give to themselves or showing up because they feel like something's lacking. So it becomes a really personal process and like an yeah. internal process and a deep process because it's really about like your relationship, not only I would say to your body, but to like yourself and imperfection and so many things get wrapped up in it. Your relationship to capitalism and happiness and presence and something I would love to have you share and, and talk about is 
what led you to this work? Because I find that we often give the medicine that we needed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, (laughs) I guide people back to nature because I need it. I have like ADHD tendencies and I get overwhelmed. And so I need nature because it brings me back to presence and pause and that's like my greatest gift is to offer it. And so for you, I was listening to another podcast where you talked about how you were really disconnected from your body. And I think it's so powerful. The story is so powerful because you were a dancer. And something that I also encounter a lot in my conversations with people about nature is this this idea of you can physically be in nature and not be connected to it. And so can you can you share a bit more about your journey with your with your body and how that led you to this work. I've actually had this conversation with Jules before in that I feel like when I was dancing, you know, like at a professional level, it was more about like how can I like beat my body into submission? How can I do this many turns? How can I hold this balance for this long? It was not there was not like a listening relationship with it. And I do think that I'm sure my art suffered as a result of being so disconnected, but I was so like, um, product oriented or results oriented that I was missing all of that in between. Yeah. I think, I mean, I started teaching fitness in general, just as a, like a day job because I was still auditioning and I was hoping to, to continue to pursue dance professionally. And more and more, it just became like, I really enjoyed the interactions that I was having with students and I enjoyed teaching Teaching in general was so healing for my social anxiety because like you're forced to stand in front of a crowd, a crowd of like what, 12 to 25 people and be looked at as the authority. Whereas, you know, the psychology of a dancer is like clay instrument, like the choreographer is the one with the voice and you're just, you're just there to communicate it. And so I was all of a sudden put in this position of like, however much an authority your Pilates instructor has, but for that 45, 60 minutes, they're, they're in charge. And so that was just in and of itself, so healing for me. But as I, you know, continued teaching, got out of my apprenticeship, I started feeling very uncomfortable with the cueing and the, just like the, how casual people are with talking negatively about, about bodies that were assigning value to certain body types And, you know, I was also in therapy at the same time and I was trying to like rationalize my ability or my safety in this physical, in the, in the fitness space, fitness space, uh, while trying to, you know, recover from my own eating disorder. And I think on paper, that sounds like a really counterintuitive thing to do, but despite what I just said about dance being about like what I could accomplish, it's still the lens in which I see the world movement. I'm a very kinesthetic person. I started dancing when I was three. So I couldn't imagine my life without doing something physical. I wasn't about to like go learn to code as, as much as my finances would have probably benefited from that. I needed to be doing something with my body because that's, that's just the way that I understand the world. All of those things happening at the same time, also moving in with my partner, and I've talked about this on on, on my on Michelle's podcast, on the Holisticism podcast, how you know part, your partners can sometimes reflect a lot of stuff back at you. Oh, they can. And <laughs> and you know he happens to be French and has just this very intuitive relationship with food and movement. It's 
it's very much about paying attention to how you feel. And it's not something that anyone said to him, like, that's, that's how you do that. It's just, I think in his, the culture that he grew up in, it was much more just unspoken. And that was the expectation where, you know, American culture is, is very different. So us moving in together at the same time that I'm starting to, you know, start to teach full time, I became very, very conscious of, of the words that I was saying. And even for someone with as much privilege as I, as I have, thin, able-bodied, straight-passing, upper-middle-class, it, it goes on. Even for someone with all that privilege, it can still be a really toxic environment. And so I became very, very uncomfortable with contributing to that. And obviously not saying that I'm perfect at this now. I'm still always learning and, and trying to do better. But I think that the, the biggest shift that I made early on was just the words and the language that I use when I'm teaching. Pilates for so long has had a a reputation of being for dancers or wealthy white women. And because of that, the cues that we learn in certifications are geared towards, you know, a specific body type without understanding necessarily of body diversity and the idea that like thinness doesn't equal health if we're talking about trying to help promote healthy behaviors in our students. So I could go on and on just from like a teaching teachers perspective, but I also wrote a blog on this that I can send you. There's a very interesting study, and I'm forgetting what journal it was in, talking about like what you were saying earlier that like fitness looks the same on the outside. A plank is a plank is a plank. Um, but they had two groups of women, and one, they had the same playlist. They had the same exact class. Almost everything was exactly the same. But the first group, the instructor said things like, this is to you know fix XYZ area. This is like for all your problem spots, blah, 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 that type of, it feels old school, but it's still happening everywhere, you know, the bikini body type of stuff. And another class cued based on feeling where the movement was initiating and, you know, just functional cues. This, this will help you ease back pain, or this will help your posture open up, like more real life context. And at the end of each class, like, exercise makes you feel good. So everyone has those endorphins. Everyone has that buzz. Everyone recorded saying they felt better after class, but the group that had those like body shaming clues, though their mood was boosted, they felt worse about their bodies. And so, you know, that's a small study. I'm forgetting all of the, all of the details, but of course, if we're talking like scientifically, we can't necessarily say that's the entire world, blah, blah, blah. But to me, that really just solidifies that you have such a influence over someone in a, in a fitness, fitness class when you're the facilitator. And even you, as, a, as just a person practicing, you are in control of your environment as well. You can't always, I hope you don't try to control your thoughts because, you know, that's toxic positivity and all of that. But you have the ability to recognize when those thoughts are serving you and, you know, try to choose to help yourself spiral upward out of those things that can can be really reflexive because it's so common when we think about our bodies, when we think about movement. But over time, the more you practice thinking about it in a slightly different way, it still looks like a plank, but it feels totally different. And your experience the rest of the day and, and so on is very different. I think you touch on something so important because we never know what's going on 
beyond what we see. And something that I've experienced that I don't think I've really talked about on this podcast that much is that I have thin privilege. I mean, you know, I, I am thin, but I have had a disordered for many years, and, and it's less now, but for many years I had a disordered relationship with my body. But it wasn't because I wanted to look a certain way or or it wasn't based on sort of an external goal. It was because I was suffering with a lot of health problems internally. And I felt like my body was betraying me. And I felt like I had to eat a lot of like a, re- a really restrictive diet. And there were a lot of things I couldn't do because of my physical health, because I was struggling with a lot of digestive problems. And I started to realize that It was a similar relationship to someone who had an eating disorder because I sort of became all consumed and traumatized by that experience because I didn't, you know, sometimes I didn't know what to eat and I felt a lot of shame and I felt like a lot of restriction and I hated my body. I would look in the mirror and be like, you've betrayed me, but it wasn't necessarily because of what it looked like. It was because of how I was feeling. But I think that that's something important to talk about because we are dealing with a generation, the millennials, who now have more autoimmune conditions than any other generation. People are getting sicker and sicker. And I've talked to other people who struggle with their health and they too also feel that type of like anger towards their body that it definitely had, it's like a different path, but the root of it comes from the same place of like not yeah. feeling compassion and not feeling like, you know, having a, yeah, a relationship that is from a place of love and care and giving, you know, it was like, oh, I can't eat these foods. So I'm living a restricted life instead of like, but I can eat these foods and that's giving to myself because it's nourishing me and hopefully helping me heal. And so I want to bring that up because I, I just, it's really interesting for me to have that experience as well. And that also, you know, in a weird way, it like, it didn't make me want to work out and take care of my physical body because I just felt really like let down by it. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure you weren't feeling like up to yeah, I was tired. five miles. <laughs> I was also like tired, but It's just so interesting because you never know when you look at someone, you know, I think people looked at me and they couldn't see any of that. You know, I looked thin, I I looked okay, but it was like, I was really struggling. It's taken some time to like rebuild that relationship. And so though, you know, I haven't had the same path as you, I recognize the sort of root of what needs to be healed in a similar way. Absolutely. And that's a, again, a whole other topic of how, I mean, eating disorders are interesting because they're, they're both a mental illness and something that affects you physically. And it is the highest morbidity rate of all mental illnesses. I think it always goes back and forth between like opioid abuse and, and eating disorders, but still so many people go undiagnosed because they don't like look the part of the, you know, Maureen and center stage. And not everybody who has an eating disorder or even just, you know, generalized disordered habits and a really a disordered relationship with their body looks like that. And a lot of people, even like you said, like if you look on the outside, 
which we can unpack. There's no, there's no look to healthy, (laughs) but the way that we, we are taught healthy looks, like you said, like so much can be going on. And I mean, maybe you experience this with, with your doctors that a lot of times it's, and I don't blame them entirely. It's, it's hard to be psychic, of course, but so many times people are, are brushed over for, for medical help because they don't look the part. And so I just feel like that's something also that needs to be reexamined within the medical field as well. Yeah. Oh my God. So much. And I, I would say it's like, it's so interesting because there's so many shades to it. Like for me, it wasn't, it didn't, present in the same way that I think an eating disorder presents for people where they're like afraid to eat in certain, you know, in certain ways. It was more like, I was like, I'm overwhelmed. Like, I don't know what's Mm going to help me. I don't know what's going to hurt me. It comes from that same place where you're like, you're overwhelmed. And bottom line is you feel controlled by your situation. Yes. Yeah. And so it's been really, I think the, the biggest nugget here is just like this idea of how do we begin to switch our relationship to food as one that is opportunities to give and nourish ourselves Mm. versus opportunities to shame and blame ourselves. My friend Shauna has a good expression where she says she's a, a dietitian that all foods fit and there are no bad foods. There are foods that you know, make you feel better. And there are foods that you can also be aware that don't really serve you. And they're also like fun foods that don't necessarily have a lot of like nutrients in them, but they offer things like ritual, tradition, joy, connection with your, your social group. Like there's so many other things that go into food that, you know, without calling it emotional eating are very emotional, a very, very much part of, you know, a a next level above just like enough minerals and vitamins to, to function as a human being. It it can be really hard, I think, in wellness culture as it stands to differentiate between like, how can I choose to eat and move in ways that feel like they're good for me? Because it's, it's often so black and white or cut and dry. It's like, you're either healthy or you're, or you're unhealthy or either clean or you're dirty. And it's, it's not like that. Sure. You might have to be working with your doctor on, on eliminating certain foods that, that happens. I'm sure you have, you could speak a lot about that experience, but it's very different than saying like, okay, well, these foods are bad now and I'm bad for eating them. Yes. And I think something it goes back to too is our disconnection from our food in general. Like I study Ayurveda and something that was so healing for me this is like way before I had all these like digestive problems, but um, because I too, you know, like we all grew up in a society that told me unless I looked a certain way, I wasn't okay. And so I definitely went through my own journey of like that feeling of restricting like certain things that I ate because I wanted to look, you know, I went through that process, that process too, before I went through, you know, my other journey with my health. Something that really healed it for me actually was studying Ayurveda and getting getting to build a relationship with the foods that I was eating in a way that yeah. was like not about anything having to do with looks. Like it was like, let's talk about a carrot and like, where does this carrot come from and what nutrients are in this carrot? It was just like, wow, this is so interesting. It's a, such a cool, you like create a different connection 
to your food in a way that feels like very exciting and empowering. That was not even about any type of cat, like calories are not part of Ayurveda. Foods are conceptualized in the framework of how they, they help nourish our tissues and how eating them helps just balance us. And in Ayurveda, what's so cool is like there are so many different body types. And that's like part of, you know, it's your dosha. It's like part of just like your inherent quality. So from the beginning, there's no like, oh, this way or that way. And in fact, the radical thing is the vata body type, which is the type that is the thinnest in appearance in general, is the one that actually suffers typically from the most physical health problems. So there you go. <laughs> you know, I'm a Vata yeah. body. And it's so interesting that like in our, our, you know, American society, we see that as health, but in actuality from a life science that's thousands of years old. So they have thousands, like 5,000 years of data and evidence to show that people who are of that quality actually have the most health problems. So that's an interesting kind of... Yeah, that's so interesting. It's also just, I mean, it's the same thing when we're talking about movement. When you have that framework behind it, it changes your, the energy associated with it. If you're thinking about a carrot can offer me all of this, then that's like more enticing to eat that nutrient dense item. Or, I mean, even the same thing, if you're saying like a chocolate can offer me, you know, baking with my mom or whatever, like that's also equally valid and important. And it, yeah, with movement, it's like this, this exercise is not easy. It's like hard, hard to sometimes I think explain that it's not going to be fun necessarily. Exercise is inherently going to challenge you. That's what, you know, makes you change and grow strong, stronger and open up, you know, tightness and improve imbalance. So it has to be energy exerted, right? But when you look at it, like, what am I going to get out of this? And I think we're just so used to thinking about like, what I'm going to get out of this is finally looking like this, you know, this body that I was told that I, I need to look like, or what seems like is healthy, but like you just said, is not necessarily always healthy. It's, I often find it hard to put into words, <laughs> like the the difference, because it's, it's subtle, but also very different at the same time. It's a different, it's a different somatic experience too. It's a different like energy that comes through. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what prompted you to choose Pilates as the movement modality that and movement system that you offer versus, you know, there are so many that you could have offered. Well, from a, Purely like logistical standpoint, I've been doing Pilates since I was young it, it, as part of my dance training. So it was very like natural. The movements also felt very familiar. Um, so it was something that, you know, just I, I gravitated towards. And also because like to, to teach like a, like a cycling class is a lot of energy expenditure. I mean, so is emotionally like holding space for someone. And, you know, I'm not saying that Pilates is easier, but I just felt like that would have been unsustainable for me going towards something more like quote fitnessy based. I also love that Pilates has this ability to be both therapeutic, rehabilitative and exhilarating and cathartic. It has both of those things in it. So I like that range just because, like I said, I am a, you know, 
Dancer at Heart 111 was my first AOL screen name. Oh, amazing. <laughs> that is- <laughs> oh my God, I love that. So were you in dance competitions? Uh, we did a little bit of, of dance competitions, but it was it wasn't really the competitive space. It was like concert dance more. I studied, I had a BF, got a BFA in dance and then I... I did dance on a cruise ship actually when I first got to New York and did a lot of like project-based stuff. Yeah, just movement. I love I love to move. So I, I like to that that sense of pride that you get from like a new skill. I joke about this, I feel like with every conversation I have about movement is like whether you're able to carry all your groceries up the stairs in one trip, like that makes you proud. You feel good about that. Whether it's 32 fuetes on point, you know, not every person's daily life goal. But when you learn a new skill, you feel pride and that helps you foster that sense of like an amiable feeling with your body. And we're so used to feeling the opposite of that, that it's a huge reason why I feel like movement is not just a way of you taking care of yourself, literally improving your longevity, your sleep, your sex life, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it helps promote that positive sentiment with your body. And I think the unfortunate like co-opting of that on social media is like, you'll feel good about your body when your body looks the way that you want it to. And that's what it, it does to feel good about it. But actually that keeps you stuck in that loop of always feeling bad about it. But if you make that subtle, but very different mindset change of this is helping me, you know, realize that like, I'm powerful, I'm strong, I can do the hard things and I'm stronger now than I was six weeks ago, a year ago. Like, look at all that I can do now and whatever your modality is. Yeah. And this, I mean, something we talked about before we hit record, you know, when we first connected is like this relationship with our body where we think we have to look a certain way to gain some type of like self-love or, or admiration and validation from the external world is completely fabricated. It's like constructed by society completely. So like the whole thing is just kind of a, it's just made up. Like it's not actually the reality. Like there's actually no basis in fact around it. You know, you were sharing with me that like it has always been used as a tool to promote profit and, and, and exploitation of individuals. Yeah. And I think we, we talked about this last time we were chatting that really this like the diet culture thing or the roots of diet culture started when clothing started being mass produced and people had to like choose a size and then a size was idealized. Whereas before you either made your own clothes or you paid someone to make clothes to fit your body. And so it was not as wrapped up in like consumerism the way that it is now. And now it all plays together. Like you have to buy this bath salt to take care of yourself. You have to, you know, buy this oil to meditate. Like it's, it all is, you know, I'm sure those are some nice products. I, I use, <laughs> use them, but you don't need those things. You also don't need me to lead you through a class. You might want me to, because it's something that I have a lot of experience in and we like to delegate out those, so we have free space in our brains. So I'm all about that. But at the end of the day, you you have the power to take a walk with your dog or to stretch or to key into what's going on in your body. What do you need? Something that I also find so fascinating is that in the past, we got our exercise not because we thought we should, but because we needed to. If we were 
you know, I'm talking thousands of years ago, if we were running from a predator or we needed to quickly go find something that we needed to survive. And in the same way, we also didn't have to will ourselves to be in connection with the natural world because we just were. Or in it, yeah. We were just in it. It was just this, what that was our home. <laughs> and so I'd love to hear what are the ways that we can incorporate more natural movement into our existing daily lives rather than having to feel like an additional to do that we have to carve out that moment. Even if, you know, that is really important, but it's like, I feel like, you know, there've been so many studies too about how it's not really the best for us. And obviously that makes sense, but like to sit for many hours in the day and then have this like one break where we move for a little bit um, over like a long period of time, that's probably not the thing that's going to give us the most health. Yeah. So I talk about this with, especially with like new clients, they'll be like, how many times should I work out a week? And like, even if you're doing seven days a week, which I argue is no one needs to be doing seven days a week. Um, even if you're doing like full an hour, two hours every single day, you're like going so intense and then you're just sitting for the rest of the day and you totally disconnect from your body. That's still only an hour out of your day. You know, there's 23 other hours we need to still be paying attention to ourselves. As much as I love a formal class, like I love that codified environment, again, dance, big, big through line through all of it. And I think that our brains appreciate that structure. So, you know, I have a class schedule. That's my workout time. But I also pay attention to how I'm holding myself while I'm, I'm washing the dishes. Am I gripping and squeezing my glutes when I'm stressed out? Are my shoulders up in my neck? What Pilates is really helpful for is cultivating that body awareness. And so many people don't, well, I sh should say naturally we do have that. And then where it's, it's, you know, taught out of us. Um, so, so many, you know, adults don't have that anymore and we need to get back into that process of the body scan of the listening, whatever you want to call it. Um, so if you have a regular formal movement practice, whether it's like you go for a run, you do your cycling class, whatever that's built into your schedule as like your reminder time or like your, this is my check-in time. And the more you do that, I think the more natural it gets, the more like second nature it gets to, to do that throughout the day. But even setting alerts on your phone, like throughout this whole year, I've had like little alarms on my phone to like stand up and stretch because even me, you know, this is what I talk about all day. I also get in the zone and my emails and I don't stand up for a long time. So you can set alerts on your phone. You can, you know, just think, I mean, I'm a big body scan for person when you're sitting at your desk, even if you can't get up out of your desk, like, can you feel your feet on the floor? Can you, can you actually feel your body? Like when I first started doing somatic experiencing therapy with my therapist, I was so like, I couldn't even explain sensation from my neck to my pelvis. Like I was so out of body. Little by little, the more you think about what is the fabric of your leggings feel like on your pants? What is, what, what does the pressure of your butt on your seat feel like that, that starts to come back. And it's definitely not a, a sexy quick fix. 10 days to body awareness thing, you know, that doesn't exist, which is why I think it's a harder sell than what we see going on in fitness most of the time with diet culture, but it's a completely different experience.
And I would also say that it's the pathway to joy because being, I too was very disembodied a few years ago before I started connecting with the natural world. And I used to do body scans and I couldn't feel anything. And I thought, well, I guess body scans don't work. And it was, it was not that. It was that I just, I didn't have, I didn't know how to connect in. But I talk about this a lot on this show is that when you connect in and when you can be in your body, you're in your present experience. When you're in your present experience, you have the capacity to feel joy and fulfillment in a way that you can never feel when you're constantly in your mind. So it's, you know, to me, it's like movement, you're offering movement, not just for that physical and compassionate connection to your body, but also as like a pathway to presence and then therefore like joy and freedom, freedom like from, you know, the constraints of your mind, which have nothing to do with who you are. Like we are not our minds. We are not our thoughts. And so I think it's so powerful because, you know, my partner, he's a somatic energy healer. So he works with people to help heal their relationship with their bodies. And the reason why people come to him is because a lot of times people who have chronic illnesses, they are struggling and nothing is helping. Like they may be going to the doctor, they may be taking all the supplements, they may have even gone the Eastern medicine route, they may have even tried meditation, but it's not helping. And the reason why, and he talks about this a lot, is because you cannot heal your body if you are not in your body. If you are not connected to your energy, if you're not connected to this like system of energy that moves through us all the time. And so he really works on, he helps people actually who feel like there's no answer for them heal themselves. And he actually completely healed himself um, from fibromyalgia just with somatic meditation. And I feel like what's really cool about the work that you do is having that like mindful movement practice is an opening for so many people into a new relationship with their bodies. And that is like very powerful and life-changing. And that's the part about your work that I feel very excited about because that's, I think the root of, of that disconnection is the root of many people's illnesses, which for me, I know is true. Um, David, I mean, this is the work that he does in the world and he, he experienced it very acutely for himself. Yeah. And I mean, at the same time as that, I also am like the first to say, like to know when to stay in your lane, you know, like a lot of people have body trauma, especially a lot of people who come into a fitness studio. I think it's, the responsibility of studios and trainers and what have you to do certification in that work, as well as the, you know, the anatomy and the, you know, the, the programming and blah, 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 but also to be very, very, very liberal with the referrals out, you know, Mm -hmm. like I am, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist. I am someone who has a lot of experience both good and bad with movement. And I can lead a class really well and I can make it as safe as I feel is possible. But if you're still struggling, backing up even more, like just the idea of being present is very 
scary and unsafe for a lot of people. So if that's where you are, no, my Pilates class is not going to fix that. And I, I, I think that it's like archetype of the, the, the wellness influencer who has like figured it out and is like a guru and has it all. And it, yeah, it plays into that consumerism thing. Capitalism is, is our problem at the end of the day. But yeah, it's where our goal is to be more present and in our bodies, but we can't deny the fact that there's a lot of people who don't feel like that's a viable option because of whatever specific trauma that's going on with their bodies. That doesn't mean that we can't do our best to make it a safer place. You know, right now it's like the, the bar is so low. I think dance, because I also too uh, was a dancer. I'm sensing a theme here. I feel like Michelle was a dancer. There's so many people who are like, Jules is a dancer. I think people who are very sensitive find their way to dance in a way because it's like, it feels like a way to express yourself in without that like social, I don't know. Anyways, that's a whole other thread. But basically, I do think that for me, having movement and movement classes in a, in a way that you do it in a way that's like inviting and welcoming is a real big opening for people who in the past have really struggled. At least I know it, it has been and continues to be for me. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's, that's really my whole, my whole goal is to make movement something that you look forward to, something that helps you practice taking care of yourself with practice being, again, the, the cheesy keyword that it's not a destination that we arrive at where, you know, like we never have bad thoughts about our body. We never feel disconnected. Life happens and those things come up, but it's something that you can keep coming back to and just have a little bit of self-compassion, a little bit of, of kindness to your body a few minutes a day, whatever your, you know, situation and schedule is. What do we need to believe in order to heal our relationship with our bodies if we're really struggling? Oh, that's a, a heavy question. <laughs> um, I think I've also done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and I love that, like pulling at the thread, like the root of the root of the root practice. But for me, it was that I'm not inherently bad, that I'm worthy. And that when you start working up from there, then you feel like you, okay, you deserve to enjoy being embodied or to at least to have the capacity to be embodied. Like I said, it might not necessarily be a joyful experience all the time, but yeah, that you're, you're, you're not bad. That's really powerful. And I feel like that is the root of what so many people feel underneath everything, not only their relationship with their body, but their relationship with their partners or their friends. It's that feeling of like, I am bad, I am wrong. Something that I love about nature and that nature provides is that belonging. It's like nature doesn't, you're not bad. That's not something that is part of the paradigm of the natural world. We are all part of it and we all belong to it in whatever body form it looks like. Yeah. Well, when you said that, it just made me think of, I often, when I'm cueing like single-sided work, like people will notice that, you know, one side is, is more challenging, more restrictive, restricted, you know, our bodies are not symmetrical because we're from the natural world. And I was like, if you were man-made, if you were a robot, you would be all right angles and, <laughs> and symmetrical from right to left. But like the moss growing on a tree is not the same on one side as it is on the other. There's, there's no symmetry in nature. So we, 
guess like if there's, you know, big muscular imbalances that are affecting your ability to, to move, we can, we can use movement to help heal that and, and, and rebalance, but it'll never be, I am as strong with my right hand as, as I am with my left and, and whatnot. And that's a, a hard thing to drop expectation of, I think mm-hmm. in the beginning. And just that idea of like health isn't some a goal that you achieve. Like it's not an end point. Like you don't work for years and then you're like, okay, I've gotten health check yes. because something yes. changes. It's like dynamic. It's, it's ever evolving. It's based on our environment. It's so there's so many variables that create this picture of what health is, not to mention there's no one version of health because it's individualized. So this entire idea of like working to achieve an end goal is in itself a myth in a way, because it's like, you know, I mean, I'm sure you feel this because you do this work every day. It's like, as soon as you, you feel strong or you achieve some goal in your fitness, like maybe something in life happens and you are eating differently than you have. And then your body change. It's like, it's constantly ebbing and flowing. We're like, we are just these dynamic, alive beings. And how do we really honor that? Yeah. And I've been feeling that a lot lately in terms of like productivity and, and the fact that, you know, I, I run my own business and there's always another course I want to do. There's always another like certification I want to do. And yes, it's, those are, those are all great things to continue growing and evolving, but it's also, it can be really overwhelming to the point where like you self-sabotage and just don't even try because it's, it feels like it's an impossible thing to achieve, to be all knowing, to be all strong, to be, you know, whatever the, the, the topic it is for you. And it's just, again, it gets you stuck in that loop instead of continuing on your trajectory. The last thing I want to ask you about before we get into the last segment of this podcast, which is a series of five questions that I ask every guest, is about your experience of leaving the city during the pandemic and going upstate and living upstate and being much more in close proximity to the natural world. And I'd love to hear what that experience was like for you and how that closeness shifted your day-to-day. Well, even before we left the city, the pandemic in general like opened up time for me and I think for a lot of people in a way that I had never had access to before. And it was definitely you know, an extreme privilege to have the ability to, to make it work from home. I had to be crafty and, and figure out some technolo- technological things, but I, I was able to do it. You know, whether it was school or rehearsals or waitressing or, or teaching Pilates, all of these, you know, things that I've done professionally was always very much dependent on someone else's schedule. And so that was just you know, exponentially opened up when we got upstate, this feeling of like, just that, like I was in control. I was the, I was in charge of, of what was going on when I feel like so often in New York, you're like, you're beholden to the train and, you know, the social calendar and so many things, even outside of your professional life. And then of course it was just lovely to have fields around me and be able to, you know, walk outside without having to wear a mask because there was no one around. And just that, what that does to your nervous system is a whole other thing. Cause I had a lot of health anxiety when we were in the city before we left, I was very, very afraid. I mean, I still am, I'm vaccinated now, but I'm still very, you know, it's not over. I'm not 
relaxed about it now. It's gone down a lot because of the, my ability to get vaccinated and because we've had all of that space throughout the worst of it. But it, that was just very, very, the word that's just coming in my mind a lot is ease. It was just, there was so much more ease <laughs> being able to, to get out and I'm really grateful for it. I also really missed Brooklyn. So I'm very happy to be back at the same time. It's a, a weird dichotomy, but yeah. Okay. Well, are you ready for the last five questions? I am. Okay. Rapid fire round. So trust your intuition on the answers. What is your favorite place in nature? Huh. My favorite place in nature is probably Avalon, New Jersey. It's a, a, like a beach town where I grew up going. You know, lots of family, obviously love the sun. And it's, it's the one house that was like in my family my entire life because we moved around a bunch, but that was my grandparents' house and it was always there. So it, that is like home base. What is the animal, mineral, or plant that resonates with you the most? Ooh, black cats. <laughs> wow, that was a quick answer. <laughs> yes, I've always, always felt an affinity. We always had black cats. Always love them. I don't know. They just, they speak to me. <laughs> I love that answer. What is one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony into our lives? Walking. I have gotten really, really into like mom walks this year. Another thing that being away from the city and being in nature allowed me to do this year is take like the pressure off of formalizing my movement practice. So there were days where I would teach just like verbally through Zoom, I wouldn't actually be moving. And then, you know, I wouldn't do a class for a few days. And just by the nature of what my work has always been, that's not really always been possible for me. And it was very nice to experience, you know, what I talk about all the time, which is that you don't have to overthink it. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? Greatest lesson? Probably along the lines of what we were saying earlier about how, like, imperfection is natural. And like the idea, even just the word imperfection is, is man-made. Like there's no real such thing. Complete this sentence. Nature brings me peace. Thank you so much, Helen. This was lovely to chat with you in this capacity. Thank you. I'm always, you know, I, I geek out on talking about this stuff. So happy to get on a microphone and do it. <laughs> awesome. Hello, if you're hearing my voice, you've made it to the end of this episode. I hope you got something meaningful from this conversation with Helen Phelan. I know it reminded me about the difference between moving towards exercise because of an intention to give to myself versus moving towards it because of an intention to punish myself because there is a part of me that I dislike or I want to fix. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. It would mean the world to me if you left a review. Reviews really matter in the podcast world that we're in. And it would mean so much to me if you took the time to write a review of the show. That's all for me this week. I will see you on the internet or on the trail. So long. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature Podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. 
Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.